Our lives are marked with calling, calling from a great God who chooses to use us to further his kingdom. Throughout history, we see people who have said yes to this calling, and in doing so, have been used by God in incredible, eternal ways. In the Bible, we see many examples of people running toward the calling on their lives. However, we also read of people who ran away from God. Which one are you? Do your fears, your struggles, your disappointments in people tempt you to turn and flee from the very mission that God has for you? Perhaps you've even forgotten what you yourself have been saved from. Our God is big and his love for us is infinite. May we not run from him and his plans, but instead embrace the calling on our lives and take this infinite love to a lost and dying world. All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? You guys are definitely alive this morning. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job they did getting us focused today. And uh, love that new song. It's very Easter-esque. And that's what we're doing. We are marching towards that. Allison reminded you three weeks from today, uh, we are uh, going to be at Easter. It was good to know that cinnamon rolls are such a motivator. This is awesome. I know how we're going to do this in the future. This is working out really good. But we really would, and I would just, I would send that back to you as a thought. Hey, first and foremost, the people that you are doing life with, that you're praying for, you're invested in, go to whatever service they can go to on Easter. Invite them and say, hey, these are our three service times, whatever works for you. I wanna be your host at those services. But, but if you're like, hey, I have flexibility, I could really go to any of the three, and why would you not enjoy cinnamon rolls to start the morning. So do that. I always tell people, I grew up in the day and age where we do all these sunrise services. This is like a sleep-in sunrise service. This is not a bad gig. So take us up on that. We're gonna have a great day that day celebrating what Jesus has accomplished. And uh, we look forward to it. This is what this series is doing. We chose this series of Jonah looking forward these four weeks leading up to Easter because it's gonna set our heart aright. And I'm really glad, glad you're here today. My name's Todd Arnett, the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. You join us for week two in this series on the book of Jonah and this subtitle, How to Keep Hating Your Enemies. And we're gonna see from his life, God, there's a whole lot of example of what not to do. Would you give us hearts and actions and attitudes that look a lot different than how he responded to your call? So if you have a Bible today, that's where we're gonna be, Jonah chapter two, if you wanna find your way there and be ready. If you look in your Trinity this week, you have notes that look like these. If you wanna have those ready just to track with us and then for those of you that are in home groups, this is gonna be your prompt for your conversations later on this week and hope that that's a really great conversation that you get to have have. Well, what I want to do today is I want to uh, do a quick review of last week as we dial in so we can catch people up if you weren't here. Basically, we started the book off, and Jonah is this prophet. He's been given this role by God, and we know that he lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. Most prophets, the, the word prophet just means mouthpiece for God, they would speak to God's people, to the nation of Israel in the north or Judah in the south, and, and once in a while they would sprinkle in, oh, by the way, people of Edom, God wants you to know this or people of Egypt, God is gonna do this among you. But Jonah's role is unique. He and just a few others are prophets to, at least the writing prophets, to nations that are not Israel. And in particular, the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrians. Now, Jonah is told by God, go to Nineveh, tell them of my pending doom. We thought, hey, Jonah hates these guys. That's gonna be great news. What we realize is Jonah is actually very much afraid that God could forgive them. 
So he says, not on my watch. And what we saw on a map 550 miles northeast to Nineveh, all via camel, he goes to the port city of Joppa, gets on a boat to Tarshish, that's 2,500 miles away by sea. And we've talked about it last week. We love the irony that even in our series graphic, there's a big anchor. When you understand the geography of the book of Jonah, what should be there is a camel. That's how he should have gotten to where he was gonna go. But in his rebellion says, God, I'm going the opposite direction. He gets on this boat, not even far away probably from, the, from Joppa, and God sends this amazing storm. The storm is so strong that professional sailors are dumping all the cargo off. They're praying to their gods. They, they think they're going to die. This is no small thing. Jonah gets brought up from the bottom of the boat, and they realize it's you. What's your problem? What have you done? He tells them, oh, by the way, I've offended the God who created everything. They freak out. They even start praying to this God, to Yahweh, to spare them. And they ask him, what should we do to you? <laughs> you know, it's gotta be something to make this God stop. And he basically says, just throw me over the boat. Now we said last week, that, that seems very cavalier. I kind of think he just did it like this. I'd rather die before the people of Nineveh have a chance to hear that they could actually turn away the wrath of God. Throw me overboard. So they do, and they even pray to Yahweh, forgive us. They realize that's murder. No one's gonna survive out in the open water this kind of storm. They say, pray to Yahweh, forgive us for pitching this guy over the boat. We don't know what else to do. As soon as he is dropped into the water, the storm stops. And these pagan Phoenician sailors lift up sacrifices to the God of Jonah because they realize he is an awesome and powerful God. What we said last week is we want to track not only Jonah's actions and attitudes, and, and we said this series is going to be really powerful potentially for us because we're not going to look out the mirror, or look out the window, I'm sorry, at all these other people and how they don't get it. We're going to look a lot in the mirror, and, and we're going to see some Jonah. But what we also want to do is I want you to pay attention to every single person that Jonah rubs shoulders with, because you're going to see that even though he doesn't care about any of them, he put these sailors in great risk by getting on their boat, yet they see a powerful God through Jonah. The Ninevites, similar story. So I want you to see that, but really what I want you to see, and especially what I want you to see today in chapter two, I want you to see the heart of God. I want you to see a God who is present and a God who pursues Jonah, though he runs from him. And I want you and I to say, thank you, God, that you're like that because I am Jonah. Thank you that you are patient. Thank you that you are kind. Thank you that you're merciful. Jonah's gonna receive a severe mercy we're gonna see today, and that's where we're gonna take you to. Um, for those of you who are well aware of the book of Jonah, raise your hand. Okay, that's unfortunate um, because so many raised your hand because we're gonna see today that what you have always associated this story with Jonah and the big fish, whale, whatever, yeah, fill in the blank. He appears in two verses of the entire book. And yet you thought that's what the whole book is about. So we're gonna unpack that a little bit today. Here's our now what statement. Recognize God's mercy toward you as an opportunity to engage his mission. When God is merciful towards you, the working definition for mercy, not getting what you deserve, realize it's an opportunity to engage his mission. Number one in your notes, God's mercy comes in many forms. 
God's mercy comes in many forms. I actually told you to turn to Jonah 2. Look at the last words of Jonah 1. Jonah 1.17, where we pick it up from last week. Now the Lord, key phrase, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Ah, now we can rest easy. The fish shows up, right? It's what we've thought about the whole time. And the problem with our growing up is simply what flannel graph and what veggie tales did to us. I'm not against those things, but they have painted a picture that really hasn't helped us understand really the, the hard-heartedness of Jonah like he is, but they also have really helped us misconstrue what this whole fish is all about. Take a look. These are children's book covers. It wasn't hard to find them. They're all over the place, and, and they all represent the same thing. You have this story of Jonah and what's prolific. Literally, the art on the cover of the book is all about this big fish. And we're going to see today what the fish is, is an agent of mercy. God sends it as a form of protection over Jonah, but it's not to be confused that this is some real significant part of the book. Why? It never should have been. You don't get on a boat to go to Nineveh. The story that you and I should always think of, or the icon should have always been a camel, because that's what obedience looked like. And instead, we see a whole lot of just derailment on what Jonah was supposed to do because he failed to follow God. Today, I wanna to help you see how the fish is indeed an agent of mercy, a vehicle by which God not only saves Jonah, but deposits him on a beach so he can engage the mission that God had for him all along. Let's review a little bit. When Jonah ran away to Tarshish, got on a boat, who sent the storm that threatened the boat? Yeah, we saw real clearly last week, God did it. No, that's a good answer. Keep it up, it was perfect. God sent the storm, and, and it was really clear in the text. When Jonah was thrown into the sea, seemingly somehow to appease the vengeful God, who brought the big fish? God. So I want you to see how present, I want you to see how protective. See, what God did first is God's going to correct Jonah and say, hey, you don't need a boat to go to where I assigned you. I'm going to put a storm on that boat so that you're going to realize this is not the direction I want you to go. But when he's cast into the sea, utterly left for dead, God sends a fish, swallows him whole, and protects him during this time. All over this book, you're going to see the hand of God both correcting and protecting. Both correcting and protecting Jonah. And even though we may walk away with some significant questions about this book by the time we're done, of God, what does this mean for me? And, and how, it, in part, have I really just missed the plot? What I really want to keep bringing you back to is not a sense of guilt and shame of, God, I haven't been engaged. God, I'm not on mission. What's wrong with me? I really want you to see how patient and kind and loving God is, even when we go the opposite direction. Though there's a huge fish in the room now that we've talked about, I really want to talk about the elephant in the room regarding Jonah being in the beast for three days and three nights. Look at this picture. This is one of the covers you just saw a minute ago. In the Sunday school version of uh, the story, you never really worried much about Jonah because this was always your idea, right? Guy gets pitched into the water, crazy storm, <laughs> swallowed whole, and there he is just sitting there praying for three days, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not how it went down. Okay? And the problem was when you were a child and you were hearing this story like so many of us did, that was a good enough answer. Like, oh. But, but then you get into high school and you get into a young adult life and then you're hearing or reading the book of Jonah and going, I'm pretty sure there's not a lot of oxygen in the belly of a fish. 
And I'm also wondering, what does someone look like who's been decomposing for three days? Huh. Those are kind of more adult questions for this book that gets characterized always as a little kid's story. It's a great story for all ages, but it's good that we actually want to address some of these questions. So here's the interesting thing. Sadly enough, I know people personally who've had a real faith problem because of this story. God, how do you do that? Like nobody lives for three days in a fish. There's nothing to breathe in there. Uh, God, you get thrown up on the, sh on the shore and like everything's just hunky-dory. Like when it starts, like I have problems with that and they've really had this tension. And I wanna say today, if that's you, if you're here and you go, yeah, I heard the childhood story, but it sounds a lot today like Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox. And that whole mythical folklore thing, if that's what the Bible is, then I've got some real concerns about the rest. I think that's a very fair question. I wanna help you unpack that a little bit. Here's three things I think you can do with this story related to how it actually could have happened. First off, some believe that there is this idea that he physically managed to stay alive for this time in the fish. He's a true survivor. I would just say there are tons of problems with that and it's not likely. But some people would wanna go that route. They wanna look through the, the physical lens, the laws of science, how could this happen? I would just say, I don't think that's reasonable. But that's some people's opinion. Secondly, this, I, I think another viable option is that he was supernaturally able to stay alive inside the fish. And here's what I mean by that. We've already said that the God who spoke everything into existence, we've already said that the God who sent a supernatural storm on those waters, the God who sent a, a fish supernaturally to swallow him, if that God can supersede his own laws of science, could that same God not provide a way for this man to also stay alive for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish where there's no oxygen. Supernaturally, I believe he could. I believe that's not even him sweating on how I'm gonna do this, if he's the creator of everything that you see. So God's supernaturally creating an opportunity for him to remain alive during those three days, I think that's a reasonable option. Another option is this, he actually died. He actually died in the fish at some point and God brought him back to life. You see, we're gonna read in this next part of chapter two some incredibly vivid poetry and he's gonna reference the word Sheol. Sheol is what Old Testament people understood. That's where you go when you die. He's gonna use that phraseology. He's also gonna say very vividly, he went to the, where the roots of the mountains are. Okay, we got some guys on it. So he went to the roots of the mountains. You have this real vivid imagery of just this sinking either to death or at least near it. And, and for me, this also takes obviously a very supernatural explanation to be dead in this fish for three days, spewed up onto the shore and then come back to life. Wow, that's crazy. Have you ever heard anything in the Bible where people were brought back to life? I've heard that a few times. No, so here's the thing. If you're here today and, and you look at the whole of scripture and you see other times how God supernaturally breaks his own rules related to any miracle you read in scripture, uh, these big vats of water don't just become wine unless you have the supernatural ability to make them so. Uh, people who are paralyzed don't just get up and walk because you walked by unless you supernaturally can heal them. So if you, if you look at the whole of scripture, Supernatural intervention here doesn't seem like that big of a stretch. But you might be here today and you'd say, Todd, I have a problem with that. And I'd say, that's it's fine, I'm really glad you're here, but you're gonna have a problem with a lot of the Bible. 
because a lot of the Bible talks about how God breaks into his own world and he does things that are different to get our attention. He does things that are different often to provide healing and hope. So if you're gonna take a view that the Bible does have supernatural acts that happen, I don't think this is too far outside of that realm. My hope is that it wouldn't be a faith shaker for you. But suffice it for now, recognize that God as an act of mercy sends a fish to rescue a prophet who is not interested in rescuing a city. How powerful is that? Let's look on, number two in your notes. When God has mercy on you, you tend to be grateful but not repentant. When God has mercy on you, you tend to be grateful but not repentant. Now, I'm not pointing my finger right at you when I say that. I'm saying that collectively of us, but think about that for a minute. Think about that thought. What does that mean? Why would I be grateful for God not giving me what I deserve but not move me to actual repentance? Look at Jonah's story, and I think you'll see some similarities. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So he was at least alive for some point, right? He's talking to God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, that's that word Sheol, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You, watch this, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. Watch this, all your waves. So Jonah's totally giving credit to God. God, you've done this. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Get this picture. The seaweed was wrapped around my head, kind of like the seaweed turban, you know, going on. Um, To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now, I think this is some of the most vivid poetry in all of scripture. It's beautiful and it's powerful related to God's ability to save. So I wanna say that from the very beginning. This is powerfully written. It's beautiful language about God's ability to rescue and, and when you think about it, I guess it's fascinating to me that where this is, in a sense, at least thought of or prayed to and later probably penned was from the belly of a fish. So it must be something about environments that provide inspiration, right? It must be how it goes. Jonah was once resolved to die in his defiance. Remember we said that. We said that Jonah, whether he crossed his arms in defiance or not, we know he said, I would rather be thrown into that ocean than go back. Jonah had every opportunity on the boat to say, God, forgive me. God, I know I've gone in the opposite direction of Nineveh. God, forgive me. Jonah never once, he knows the problem. He can identify what's wrong, but never once says, I'm gonna change my ways. I'd rather die before these people hear about who Yahweh is and what he's gonna do. So we know that was his attitude going into the water, but what we find, and when we read in verse four, that there had been an understanding that Jonah would be banished from God's sight, yet we know to shift. He notices or he notes that, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. So where originally, where he had folded his arms and just simply said, I'd rather die than do what God says, there's some sort of change now that he's horizontally in the belly of a fish. That tends to happen to us, right? I'm just gonna die. Oh, this is really not good. Look what he says, verse seven. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. 
So there's some sort of heart change in Jonah that's not really keen on dying in his disobedience anymore. He calls out to God for help. You see, this chapter to me reads a lot like some of the Psalms of David. When David is praising God for saving him from the mire, but nowhere, watch this, nowhere in this poem does it ever communicate a repentant heart. When Jonah realizes that he was in, quote, the pit because of his defiance to bring this news to the Ninevites. You see, David's psalms often contain words of repentance and confession. Sometimes David would say, I'm in the pit because of my enemies. But other times he would say, God, I'm in the pit because I have rebelled against you. I'm in the pit because I have sinned and I'm turning around. Confession and repentance are very much a part of David's writings. Here, they're absent. I was thinking about it this week. When was there a time that I wanted mercy? I was grateful for mercy, but didn't change my heart. And I went back to the 11-year-old myself. So my family grew up just up the road in Yukaipa, and we grew up on about an acre of ground that we could maintain about a third of it, but the other two-thirds were full of weeds and just kind of not maintained. So my parents got the bright idea that we're gonna raise goats. Goats are gonna mow down the weeds. They did a pretty good job of that, actually. And uh, among the duties of raising goats was that their oldest son was going to be the milker of the goats. And uh, that was be me. So among this whole thing, I hated every part of it. Uh, didn't, and I'll tell you more goat milking stories someday in the future. But suffice it to say, I was not a big fan of the farm life and not a big fan of being the milker, especially of these goats. So I remember this one day in particular. It's my mom, my brother, and I. And I'm out, and I don't know what they're doing, uh, but I'm, I'm milking this goat. And this goat's been stubborn. It's been kicking me with its back hoof. And at some point, sticks its hoof in the, the cup that I'm milking into, knocks it over. And I'm just so irritated at this point. Now, before I tell you the next part of the story, I have to tell you a little bit more of my family culture. So I've shared with you before, I grew up in a culture that might not have necessarily always spoken like laws of legalism, but we sure lived it. And so I've told you before, some of the, the evidences of knowing, knowing that people aren't Christians are by some of these actions. And one of them was using profane language. Now, the dissonance in that in my home was weird because when my dad got really mad, those words actually would come out of his mouth and it would be summoned up at the end by, pardon my French. <laughs> I've always thought about the French people, like they must just be horrible in the way they just... Sailors' mouths, apparently, all the French, so I don't know what that was about. But anyway, so there's a little bit of disconnection there, like I'm confused. But um, So knowing that culture, go back to me, the, the goat has put her foot in the, the cup and knocked it over, kicked me a couple times. I'm so irritated by the time she does this, I yell out, ah, shazam! But it's not the movie that's coming out this week. It was another word that sounds a little bit like the front end of that word. And I said that word, and I remember looking, so you gotta realize that word was not said in our home, at least by my mom and my brother and I. So I look up and I look at my lock-in with my mom with her eyes, and all I can see is death. <laughs> like it's gonna go really, really bad for me. So I do the only thing an 11-year-old boy knows to do is I just run for my life. I just drop the whole thing. I'm just running. And I've got, from where we're at in the yard, I've got a good you know, distance to like where this 
part of our property pie-shaped at the end. I just run as fast as I can. You would expect maybe an 11-year-old boy could outrun his mom, so she ran after a little bit and she gave up. And I just remember just running all the way to the corner of our property at this edge and huffing and puffing and just being like, I am going to get killed when I get back there. So I just kind of, you know, get out there. I realize she's not followed me and kind of kicked the dirt clods a little bit. I probably took 10 or 15 minutes before I ever meandered back because I just know it's just going to be cream of Todd by the time I get back. So I've just taken it really slow until I finally get over there and they have gone on and do the other things. And my mom just looks at me and she says, I think you got some milking to finish. She let me go. I didn't get what I deserved. That's mercy. And I got to tell you, I'm here today telling you that story because it shines in my mind as a time that I didn't get what I should have gotten that day. And I was grateful for it. I was grateful for not getting what I deserved. But watch this, stupid goats, gotta go back and do, you know, my attitude towards the goats never changed. And my attitude towards my job, doing what I did with the goats never changed. I was grateful for not being punished, but there was no repentance in my heart for what I'd done. Huh, that looks a little bit more like the things that we do in our lives, doesn't it? God, you relent and don't give me what I deserve but it doesn't turn my heart. Now, I'm grateful to God. I mean, look at this psalm. Look at these words from Jonah. God, you are amazing. God, you rescued me from the mire. I was either at death or near it, and you saved me. He is grateful for the vertical aspect of the relationship, but he's not interested in the horizontal aspect of his faith. Because I want you to hear clearly today that both are a part of what God has called us into. Look in your notes. Jonah displays words of wanting to be near to God, but not to what God loves most, people, including the Ninevites. Jonah displays in these words, words of wanting to be near to God, but not to what God loves most, and that would be people, including the Ninevites. And how often does that play out in our lives? We're pursued by a God and brought back to a place of recognizing his goodness, and we want to be near him. We're drawn back. We say, God, thank you for what you've done in rescuing me, saving me. But the very ones he calls us to be his ambassadors towards, we still won't engage. And he says something about this. He says something from the very beginning. We're drawn to the vertical, but we resist the horizontal because that's messy. That's hard. It's challenging. We realize how great God is, his love for us. We've sung about it today. We've read words of Jonah reciting, God, you are so good. And he is. But we forget, God says, in the same way I've loved you, I want you to love them. That matters to me. Look how Jesus said it. In some of his last words, John chapter 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Paul would say it this way to the Galatians, Galatians 5.14, for the entire law, the entire law, all 700 commandments are fulfilled in keeping one. Love your neighbor as yourself. The apostle John wrote to the early church, 1 John 3.11, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. This isn't new information. We should love one another. This has always been a part of what God has called us into, not just a vertical relationship with him, but horizontal relationships with others. 
and it's always been a thing of love. I want you to see how this poetry ends in what I call a very suspicious manner. Look at verses eight and nine. Jonah's still writing, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. It's kind of almost preachy. And, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Watch this. Rather than include any words of repentance, any words of God, I was a fool, but now I've come back to understand who you are, what you've called me into, Jonah indignantly condemns the Ninevites as well as all of those who cling to worthless idols. He's in the belly of a fish being called to go give words of judgment with the potential of repentance to the Ninevites. And even in the belly of the fish, he's saying, they are so messed up. But not to the point that I'm gonna do anything about it. God, I'm still gonna honor you. God, I'm still gonna worship you. God, I'm still gonna offer sacrifices because you are the one true God. And what he says is true. There's nothing about what Jonah says that is untrue, but watch this. What's wrong is what's missing. What's wrong is what's missing. I will give words of worship to Yahweh, but not be engaged in bringing his great praise to the people who are still clinging to worthless idols. I will be quick to criticize the foolishness of the unconvinced, but I will not be an ambassador to those who are in my life. What I really don't want you to hear today is me standing on a stage and just wagging my finger because this is who I was for the first three decades of my life. I was someone who loved and craved a deep intimacy with God. I was someone who understood his calling on my life as a shepherd, a pastor to people. I love this connection to him and to the people that I worked with in the church environment, I loved them, but God, I don't want anything to do. And I'll, tell, I'll unpack that for you in just a minute. But I don't want to get involved in people's lives who aren't already convinced. That is who I was. And I could write a book about the problems with that and where I arrived at some of those things, but I think I could show you best in this picture. A picture I've showed you before, but I want you to see afresh today. Take a look at this. When you look at this picture, you're seeing some things. It's somewhat, if you've never seen it before, it's a little bit like what's going on there. You see this crazy storm. You see people all around in the waters below that are drowning. Some already drowned, others reaching out a hand. And you see some people looking like they're engaged, throwing a life ring out in the boat trying to rescue, but the majority of the people, zoom in a little closer, the majority of the people are just not paying attention. Is the nicest way to say it. Now watch what they're doing. None of them are doing anything wicked. They're having business deals. They're painting art. They're lifting weights. They're listening to music. One guy's even fishing. There's nothing sinful about fishing except when you're fishing where people are drowning. That's called negligence. That's called missing what's most important because you're distracted. What's wrong with this picture is not what they're doing. What's wrong with this picture is what they're not doing. 
And I gotta tell you, this is one of the things that God used to start just chiseling off the hardness of my heart to go, God, this is who I have been my whole life. I don't wanna live my life missing the point. I don't wanna live my life missing the plot. I believe you have me on the planet for a reason. I want to engage my purpose. My hope is, not because I'm so convincing or I'm clever, but my hope is, is that through this series, God is going to do things in you, those of us who still aren't on board. If we're honest through this series, those of us who keep seeing Jonah in the mirror, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit is gonna do things in your life to go, what am I doing? And what am I missing out on? That's really the most important to me. What are you missing out on? Number three, God's mercy will point you in the direction of people. God's mercy will point you in the direction of people. Look how this chapter finishes, Jonah 2.10. And the Lord, again, the Lord not only sends the storm, sends the fish, but now the Lord again commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. How cool, you came to church today and got to read about vomit. It's pretty sweet, okay? I want you to again see the absolute control that God has over every circumstance related to this runaway prophet. And when the time was up, God directed him to spew him up on the beach. I can't help it. I was really influenced by Wayne's World in the 90s, so I got the spew thing. Take a look at this picture. This is from the Renaissance. I love this one. It's kind of interesting when you look at the horrific-looking thing. Sorry, he's a little bit on the naked side there. But uh, he spews him up on the shore, and this is what an artist's rendering was. This is probably what it was like. I don't know if it was anything like that, but that gives you at least a weird visual to consider and maybe give you a nightmare tonight. Um, but here's what Jonah is. Jonah is sure that he's gonna defy God and run to the ends of the earth to get away from engaging God's mission to the horrible Ninevites. He was even willing to die in tumultuous seas in order to avoid the assignment. Watch this, but God. But God sends a fish and then the fish deposits him on dry land. And here's what I want you to see more than anything. The fish puts him onto dry land and the fish puts him facing Nineveh. He ran the opposite direction to the ocean when all of a sudden, all along, he should have gone over the desert. He spits him on the ground facing Nineveh, I think to communicate this. Jonah, it's been a tough four days. A lot of self-inflicted pain, only to end up where you started. You got on a boat to go this way, day at sea in the storm, three days in a fish, put you back on the shore, start over. Let's hit the reset button and try this again. Now you think about that, he's been through a lot of trauma. A lot of trauma physically, a lot of trauma emotionally, a lot of trauma spiritually, when if he would have just said, yes, Lord, I'm gonna go to these people you've sent me to, all that could have been avoided. There are an awful lot of us in this room today who've had our own belly in the fish types of narratives. God has called us to do this, be that. It was clear. It wasn't a question of, God, if you could just make it a little, no, it was clear. But instead of getting on the camel towards Nineveh, we got in the boat towards Tarshish. And actually, it was probably a lot longer than four days. Might've been 40, might've been four years, might've been four decades before we finally said, God, I relent. Your plan, your design is what I always should have been pursuing. 
I'm going to go back. I'm going to turn around. That's what the word repent means. It just means to turn around. It doesn't mean to feel bad about things. That's sorrow. It means to turn around. No matter how long it took you, there is a string of regret along the way, but praise God, he didn't give up, and praise God, you came to your senses and turned around. And by the way, you're exactly knowing who you are. You're nodding your head and you're saying, yes, thank you, God. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your protection in the middle of it, and thank you for severe mercy because you allowed me the opportunity for a do-over. That's what God has done in this whole sequence. It all comes back to you. I'm gonna give Jonah a do-over. I wanna say, take it from what Jonah experiences, those of us who maybe haven't made those decisions yet, who don't have a lot of that kind of regret. Take it from those of us who have that it goes a lot better if you get on board the train that God has assigned you to than, and follow his lead rather than your own rebellion. Now, I told you that today none of this is from a perspective of what's your problem. I've told you that for the first 30 plus years of my life, I lived as someone who was really excited about Jesus, but really didn't want to get involved in anyone else's life who didn't know him already. I'm embarrassed to tell you this next part of the story that was going on in me, but it needs to be shared so you can even get a perspective of, of really how off the rails we can get. I'm a youth pastor up in Oregon. I've been on a church staff with a guy who is incredibly gifted as an evangelist. It's not a typical gifting for a lead pastor, but that's how he was built. And in a church of 900, when I first got there, if you were to say, how many of you have been personally led to the Lord by our senior pastor, at least half of the hands would go up. Crazy. Crazy gift of being able to share the gospel in a very understandable, compelling way. So I'm watching that for these four years. I'm in seminary, so I'm getting a lot of good biblical information and instruction and teaching, and I'm at this critical juncture of I'm watching a guy who's so gifted sharing his faith, but I'm not. It's always seemed like sales to me, and I'm horrible at sales. So I've never been good at this. I'm watching how good he is, and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm reading about the way that God intends us to be on mission, and actually what I set to do the last semester of my seminary career I sat down to write a position paper. I didn't plan on it ever being published. I didn't plan for anyone to ever see it. But I was gonna write a position paper and here's the basic gist. God, you have left evangelism up to the evangelists and I'm just going to follow you and not have to worry about it. I was gonna write a paper to defend how I don't need to be on mission because the guilt and the weight was just all in my head trying to figure out why is this so hard for me? Why don't I wanna engage? Why am I just absent? And that's the only thing I could come to was I've gotta be able to put it on paper and be able to convince myself this approach is acceptable. I didn't get very far into the paper before that image I showed you a few minutes ago came across my path. And it broke my heart. It's hanging in my office today. And it was hanging in my office then. And I started realizing, God, I have missed the plot. And God brought me to a church months later where I began to realize that evangelism is not sales. And evangelism is what you don't go out and do on Saturday morning, at least not very effectively. It's what you do every day. 
as you live your life as an intentional influencer around those that you do life with. It's how you pray. It's how you invest. It's how you invite. It's a lifestyle. And watch this. Watch this today. You can do it. Every single one of us can do this. I love the way that God has gifted people in evangelism. And some of you are gifted that way. And I say, praise God and keep at it. Because you will walk up to the person in and out and you will have some conversation that just seems so corny to me. You're just gonna look at him and go, hey, that's a great burger. Where do you think that came from? The Lord is good, isn't he? And I'm just like, that's so weird. <laughs> but you will say that in all confidence and God uses you in people's lives. Praise God for that, don't stop. But for the rest of us who would say, God, I'm never gonna do that. I have great news for you today. I don't think you have to. But what you do have to do is to recognize when he calls you his ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5, that's a position of influence. That's a position of prayer. That's a position of representing him to those you do life with. You can do that. You can do that in such a way that you will be blown away when you expect God to work. And that's what I want to encourage us to in this series. My hope is that through this short series in the book of Jonah, there can be hope and perspective to see you change, to see you transformed in this area of your life, to see that God's purpose for his church, all of his church, you are a member of it. It's not God's purpose for pastors and it's not God's purpose for evangelists. It's God's purpose for all of us that you could be a source of Jesus' influence in people's lives, people that he has supernaturally, strategically placed you among. Look in your notes. In the same way that God used someone in your life to help you see the love and grace of Jesus is the same way he wants to use you in someone else's. Most of us, if I were to ask you to raise your hand today, how many of you were brought to Christ because of the influence of someone else? So many hands would go up all over this room. That's what I want to help you see you could become to someone else. God wants to use you as, in the same way you were influenced, he wants to use you as an influencer. How exciting to be on mission with God. Here's one final thought today. I just want to bring this back because it really sets us up. And I told you we picked this series on purpose. Some might see this narrative of Jonah's story as an allegory or a metaphor. And I just want to say to this, I don't think the Bible gives us that option. Number one, because as you read Jonah, there was nothing we read today. It said Jonah fell asleep, took a nap, and had this dream that he was on a boat and then in a fish. It just reads like it happened. But to me, even more importantly, Jesus references it like it happened. Matthew chapter 12, he's in the most tenuous conversation he has had yet with the Pharisees. And this is what he says, Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He's been doing miracles galore, but we want another one. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, sorry, already telling you where we're going, and how something greater than Jonah is here. 
You see, that's what we're ramping up for as we begin to celebrate Jesus' resurrection is the sign of Jonah. Three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, three days, three nights in the belly of a fish, gets spewed out onto the land to be able to say, now you get a redo, go do it. Jesus, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, comes out completely victorious, sealing for us life forever. Yea, God? God, let me pray. Father, we come before you today with this passage. We're grateful for it. We're grateful for what it does in us. We're grateful for what it teaches us. And God, like we've said last week and again today, what we keep seeing is our face in the mirror. We keep seeing Jonah. We keep seeing that often when you're merciful towards us, we're grateful for your mercy, but not as a movement to action, not as a movement to repentance. We're simply grateful we didn't get what we deserved. My prayer is today for those of us especially who are struggling, God, I don't know how to be an influencer. I don't know how to be engaged in mission. I don't know how to represent you to my world without it feeling corny or without it feeling forced or wooden or just weird. God, would you break our hearts? Would you begin to help us just pray? Because we know we can't change anyone. We know that's your work. But God, you wanna use us. You call us into partnership. We wanna be a people God, that are so in love with you and we understand our mission and we love the people that you have placed in our lives. You may be here today and you would say, Todd, I, I actually haven't really even responded to this initial invitation of Jesus's in the first place. Where do I begin? Let me help you. It's easy. A, admit. Maybe easy is not the right word, but it is simple. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit you've lived life on your terms, not God's. And as a result, there's a problem in the relationship. Be believe. Believe that Jesus is the only savior available who, like we just referenced, not only lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death for you, but was raised supernaturally on the third day, completely destroying the grip of sin and death on your life. Believe Jesus did that on your occasion, on your behalf. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my confidence in what the Bible teaches me about what Jesus did on my behalf. I put my confidence there, not in myself, not in my good works, simply in Jesus and his life lived for me. And I wanna live my life now loving and following him. That's, that's where this decision begins. God, this week, this week, would you begin to do a work in us that starts moving our heart away from Jonah's and moving our heart closer to Jesus and his mission. And Father, thank you so much that in the midst of all this, you are so patient, you are so kind, and you present us with severe mercies so that we're not completely lost. Thank you that your love never fails. We love you when we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.